did the gospel apply to Gentiles who hadn't heard of Jesus or the Messiah before? Well, our friend Paul will help us understand this today on The Bible Brief. In the last few episodes of the show, we've explored the fact that the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, has been made available to everyone. It's been made available to Jews who were expecting the Messiah. And it's been made available to Gentiles who may not have been expecting the Messiah, but need him nonetheless. Now, as we've gone through this jog through, it's no mystery to us at this point that the Jews certainly did expect the Messiah. There's so much throughout the Old Testament that points to his identity and his coming. The Old Testament tells us, among other things, that the Messiah will be the seed of Eve who defeats his enemies, the seed of Abraham who blesses all the nations of the world, the seed of David who will rule over an everlasting kingdom from David's throne the ultimate atonement covering that the law pointed to with its temporary coverings. And finally, that somehow this atonement covering will provide the righteousness of God that we can receive by faith. As we look back and look forward in the Bible story, we see all these markers of the Messiah's identity finding their fulfillment in Jesus. And it's amazing to see how God has worked through history to accomplish these purposes. And yet, we haven't really considered something that's critical to explore. How is it that the Gentiles of Paul's day, who didn't have the Old Testament, didn't have an expectation of Messiah, and didn't have all the accurate words to describe sin and atonement, how did they understand the gospel when the apostles and the other disciples preached it to them? How did the people in all the nations of the world come to understand the gospel? The simple answer is this. The people understood the gospel because it revealed the righteousness of God. And we're going to spend this episode unpacking that idea, that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Thankfully, the Apostle Paul wrote an extended letter that details how this works, so we're going to dig into that. It's the letter to the church in Rome, also called the Book of Romans. Now, one of the big statements that Paul makes in his letter to the Romans is made in the first chapter of the book, and we mentioned part of it in our last episode. He says this incredibly consequential statement. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There's a couple of things to notice here as we consider what Paul is saying. First, the gospel, the good news about Jesus and the kingdom, is the power of God for salvation. That is, that the gospel is the means that God uses to bring people to salvation, the sharing, the preaching, and the teaching of this good news. The gospel itself is the manifestation of the power of God. What's perhaps striking about this is that it's words. When you get good news, you get it in words. And God has chosen to make words the means by which and the power by which people can come to salvation from sin, which, as it turns out, has been God's method all along. Do you remember when Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Well, it was simply after God spoke a promise to him. God spoke words and Abraham believed those words. He believed that God would accomplish what God promised. And it was no different in Paul's day 2,000 years later. And it's no different today, 2,000 years even later. 
The power that God uses to save people from sin is the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And this was why Paul was unashamed of preaching it. He knew that the message itself was the power of God for salvation to the hearers. Now another question follows. Why was this a powerful message? Well, Paul says next that in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now let's ponder that for a moment. How does the gospel reveal God's righteousness? Well, consider that the gospel is good news, not just about the kingdom of God, but about the King of God, the Messiah. And the Messiah's function when he came to earth as a human was to tell God's words to the people as a prophet and to die as the Lamb of God on the cross. It's Jesus' function as the Lamb of God that helps us see the righteousness of God in the gospel. The need for the Lamb of God highlights the contrast between God and humanity while showing the means of reconciling the two. The need for the Lamb of God shows that God's holiness and righteousness, His moral perfection, requires equivalent moral perfection to have a sustained relationship with Him. The Lamb of God also shows the inability of humans in their unrighteousness to come to God on their own. They need this Lamb of God as a reconciler. Listen to Paul's description of the state of mankind how the gospel reveals the wrath of God's righteousness against the unrighteousness of man. Listen to this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, and they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Okay, that was a lot. Now let's briefly unpack it. Paul says basically this, Mankind knows about God through creation and through conscience. The moon and the stars and the rivers and the streams, everything shouts that there is a God that can be known. But, Mankind suppresses this truth that they know, and they don't honor God or give thanks to Him. And it's in this suppression that they darken their own hearts. They become fools and worship fake gods rather than the true God. Mankind has ignored and suppressed the truth in order to live in lies of their own making. And God does not accept this behavior. And so Paul says that the righteousness of God is actually revealed in the wrath of God against this behavior. 
God doesn't overlook sin and just forgive people. In fact, from the beginning of the Bible, we understand the penalty for sin. It's death. The death penalty of not only physical death, but spiritual death and separation from God. The penalty for sin is death and nothing less. And then Paul presses the point. He says that this wrath of God, requiring death for sinners, actually reveals God's righteousness. It's the expression of his moral perfection. Perfection does not tolerate lies, deceit, false worship, or truth suppression. Perfection requires truth. All else must die. The righteousness of God, then, requires the death of the sinner, so that truth and perfection prevails. But this is a problem, right? I mean, this means that all humans must die. We're all sinners, after all. No one can live up to God's perfection. No one can match God's righteousness. This is a problem indeed. Suppose you're a parent for a moment. And like a good parent, you have rules. One of which is that you must not eat too much ice cream after dinner. Well, your 10-year-old knows the rules and says after eating a good dinner that he's ready for some ice cream. And so you serve him a scoop, which he gobbles up. Then he asks for another. And you say, Remember, you shouldn't eat too much ice cream, but he insists and you give him one more scoop. So he eats it up and asks for another scoop. This time you say, no, that's enough, and everyone leaves the table. But a few hours later, as you're getting a cup of water before bed, you hear some rustling in the kitchen, and you peek in to see your 10-year-old with a spoon just eating and eating more and more ice cream. And you think to yourself, should I stop him, or should he deal with the consequences? And you decide that it's time he learns his lesson. So you watch him down the ice cream, down to the very last spoonful on the carton, which he gingerly places back, empty, into the freezer, as if to cover his tracks. Then he sneaks back to his room without taking notice of you. Well, he knew the rules and he broke them, and now the consequences would be severe. And about midnight, he comes into your room and says, My tummy hurts. And in that moment... Your rule about ice cream has been vindicated. The righteousness and wisdom and soundness of the rule has been proved. We don't eat too much ice cream because it will make our tummies hurt. But that's not actually how you react, even though it's true. Instead, you get out of bed and you help your child to feel better. Maybe that means spending much of the night in the bathroom. Maybe that means medicine for your child. Your love compels you to help your child in his need even though he caused his own suffering. Though the righteousness of the rule was vindicated, especially through the wrath of the stomach ache expressing the goodness of limiting your ice cream intake, well, love yet expresses more righteousness. It expresses the righteousness of love for your child. You provide a way for your child to heal. God's righteousness and his love are similar. Despite the dire state of mankind and its sinfulness, God in his love provides a solution through Jesus, the Lamb of God, who is the reconciler between God and mankind. Listen to Paul, which I'm going to amplify for clarity. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been shown apart from the rules and the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are declared righteous 
by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a death substitute by His blood, to be received by faith. This was to demonstrate God's righteousness, lest we think He was just passing over sins before Jesus came without consequence. It was to provide confirmation of His righteousness now, so that He might be just in demanding death for sin and the one who makes righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so maybe that was a bit confusing for you, so we'll paraphrase it. While God demonstrates His righteousness and His wrath against sin, demanding the death penalty for sin, now God has demonstrated His righteousness in a new way, a righteousness that He gives as a gift to sinners through their faith in Jesus. Jesus was the substitute who took the death penalty for sinners, and made available His own righteousness as an atonement covering to them. All they need is to believe in Him and what He accomplished on the cross. God didn't want us to think He just overlooked sins before Jesus came. No, it's in Jesus that we see that all sins, past, present, and future, had to be dealt with once and for all through death. The death penalty had to be satisfied. And God does this amazing thing. At the same time he satisfies the death sentence, he also provides righteousness for those who believe in Jesus. Sinners can be righteous when they are covered by the blood of Jesus, no longer fearing the death penalty, but having fellowship with God. Okay, so we only got to chapter 3 of the book of Romans, but our purpose here was to get a sense of the universal message of the gospel that this message was never meant for just Jews only, but it was always for the whole world. Humans sin and disobey God. God's righteousness demands death for the sinner, but God's righteousness has also been satisfied in the death of Jesus on sinners' behalf. So if you believe in Him, you can have fellowship with God again. This message is universal and worldwide in scope, but personal in application. The righteousness of God has been revealed in the gospel, and the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The question for you, listener, is this. Do you believe? Have you trusted in Jesus to have His atoning blood cover you? Have you been reconciled to God, trading your unrighteousness for God's perfect righteousness? Join us next time as we see what the New Testament has to say about the relationship between our faith in Jesus and the good things that we do. Do the things we do make us righteous, or is it only faith? Thanks for listening to The Bible Brief. Do you have a question about the Bible? It could be featured on a future show. You can submit a question by going to our website, BibleLiteracyFoundation.com, and clicking on the podcast page. There you can submit a text or audio question. We'd love to hear from you. Copyright Bible Literacy Foundation 2022